0: We, we can validate emotions without, without allowing a behavior. Hi, thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White.
1: And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being.
2: In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office.
1: We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests.
2: We're here with Sarah Bren, who's a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in psychodynamic and relationship-based approaches to working with children, parents, and families. Welcome, Sarah. I thank so much for having me.
1: Welcome. Oh, my
2: pleasure. I'm, we've known each other for a while, since training, and I was, I guess, always interested in hearing about kind of what you were doing and what path you decided to take. And you've gone in some really interesting directions. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how
0: you got involved in parenting and coaching and Yeah, definitely. So Mm -hmm. I initially started out working as a clinician, doing a lot of work with adults and adults who had severe chronic childhood trauma. And as a result were really having difficulty regulating their emotions, maintaining relationships, maintaining jobs, just kind of living life in a way that was meaningful to them. Some of it was based in DBT. Some of it was based in psychodynamic attachment-based therapy. But really, I was helping people learn how to validate their emotions, build up a solid sense of self, and be able to kind of be in control of what was of what yeah. they were experiencing again and heal old attachment wounds. A lot of the work I did was attachment based. Yeah, and I have two. I have two kids. I have three and a half year old son and a one and a half year old daughter. And when my son was born, kind of was introduced to this parenting philosophy called RIE, which is an unusual name. It stands for Resources for Infant Educators. It was developed in the sixties by this woman named Magda Gerber, but really the fundamental crux of it is that you kind of, you accept that your child is born uh, as a whole being from birth and they have their own set of perspectives and preferences from birth. And where our job as a parent is to be curious and observing of what, uh, you know, allowing them to teach us who they are rather than having like a preconceived notion. A lot of it is based on attachment related theory, right? Like using the parent-child relationship as the secure base through which all of these other other parenting strategies kind of come through. Like, how do we get our kids to cooperate? How are, do we get our kids to participate? Listen, be respectful. But by, by doing that, by respecting them and modeling that. And a lot of what I was kind of learning about in Rye was like, was like oh my gosh, this is what I'm doing with my adult patients mm-hmm. who have had really profound attachment ruptures in early childhood to kind of heal. I'm just doing it prophylactically as a preventative medicine with these, Mm -hmm. with these, with kids, with my kids in this case. But I realized I was like, okay, if I could help parents really understand attachment, secure attachment, the benefits of secure attachment, how do we foster secure attachment and how to use that safe parent-child relationship to help a child develop a solid sense of self, emotion regulation, you know, how how to have healthy relationships that they feel are like rewarding and that they want to participate in. So they learn empathy and all this great stuff. If we could, parents could learn how to do this, if I could support parents in doing this, then they wouldn't, their kids would not grow up to be the 30 and 40 year olds that came to see me as adults. It just kind of clicked for me that like, this is how I wanted to move into the work that I do. And so it's been, that's sort of my long-winded story of how I got to where I am working with parents. You know, I love
2: how you were able to sort of see something in your work. You talked about, you know, DBT. When I met you, you were sort of running these DBT groups. Can you just like define for the listener a little bit about, you know, a little bit about what that looks like? Um, it's a specific type of therapy for people who maybe do have trouble
0: with distrust tolerance or, you know, regulating their emotions? So DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. It was developed by Marsha Linehan. It is basically the sort of core principles of DBT are acceptance and change that that is sort of the represents this dialectic, which is sort of kind of a strange word, but it basically means like a conversation between two extremes. It's like the gray in the black and white. How do we both accept where we are with full compassion of how we got here, and also how do we push ourselves to change what's not working for us to to build a life that's worth living, that we feel value in, that we feel connected to, and we have agency in. A lot of, it's sort of broken down into four pillars, mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness skills. You know, if you think about the correlation between those four pillars and Parenting a child, raising a human being who is able to kind of function well in this world and feel safe and full of power and agency in this world and to trust others, being mindful having distress tolerance, which is basically being able to kind of be in an uncomfortable situation where you can't necessarily change it immediately and being able to tolerate that stretch, your capacity to sit in that uncomfortable space and not make things worse for yourself. You know, not decompensate, not dysregulate, not pick fights, not throw things,
1: you know. Mm -hmm. Not sabotage.
0: Not sabotage, and that's true for a two-year-old, and it's true for a thirty-two-year-old. Like these are things that we want to be able to do, and, and the roots of that come from that come from early learning. Emotion regulation, same thing, right? How do we how do we ride the waves of our, our emotions while staying in the driver's seat? How do we know what we are feeling and be able to name it, stay connected to it without necessarily having it turn us out, like move us outside of our our locus of control and then interpersonal effectiveness how do we actually say no and ask for things and be assertive while also maintaining relationships and respect for other people and the, the recognition that i am me and you are you and we can coexist there's respect like a lot of this sounds like respectful parenting if you think about the parallels so i, I don't know i was really struck by how dbt and respectful parenting principles are like oh gosh these these match up and frankly a lot of people who need dbt but significant number of people who benefit from DBT benefit pr- from it primarily because they did not learn these skills when they were young because either there was a chaotic environment or misattunement or just a mismatch in the parenting or maybe there was something far more problematic like abuse or trauma but even like the best of intentioned parents can be mis- could be a mismatch for their child's needs and so they don't learn these skills they don't know how to regulate their emotions because they don't know what emotions they're having. I mean, if you're a child who is always told, stop crying, you're fine. You're not really gonna develop a set of skills for knowing, well, what's making me cry right now? What is the feeling there? Instead of some, instead we could say to a child, you're really sad right now. You're really upset that this happened. I understand.
1: The imposition of the parental view of the world onto the kid. And sort of like the you were saying with with the Rye technique, you know, there's a respect for the child's world, the child's mind. You know, when parents do that, and I work with a lot of adults with with trauma issues, um, it's almost like a form of gaslighting. You know, the parents' reality doesn't make sense to the child, but the child also isn't really equipped fully to make sense of reality, which is more like the old psychoanalytic, uh, you know, Beyond and Winnicott. The the kid's operating system is kind of in. Replaced with the parents' um, not very functional operating system. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I often tell adults, it's sort of like learning a language, and it's easier if you learn it when you're a kid, automatically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think. I mean, everything's a bit easier to learn when you're a child, so it's it's a lot easier to to get it get it. Not get it perfect, but get it close enough to write the first time. You know, you mentioned Winnicott, who's like the f- coined the term, the good enough mother, or now we refer to it as the good enough parent. But this idea that like perfection in parenting is not the goal. It's actually suboptimal. Like if we get every single one of our child's needs met the second that they have it, they don't learn that they're separate from us. They don't, they learned codependency. They don't learn uh, secure attachment. Mm-hmm. They don't learn that that, you know. We are a separate being who is reliable and is going to protect them. They learn that we're merged and that's not optimal at all. So we don't want to get it right all the time. But if we get it right most of the time and we can develop this sense of safety for our child, then a lot of, of freedom comes out of that. And you, you have healthier adults. You just get, if you, it's easier to, f- to get it right the first time than to, mm-hmm. to try to go back and have to fix it later on.
2: Are there things that you see, like, frequently coming up over and over in your practice, either, and I don't want to say, like, mistakes necessarily, but things that come up as a constant struggle for a lot of
0: parents? Oh, yeah. I think, and I think it's a product of exactly what we're talking about, of, like, also just sort of generational Transmission of trauma, like we, many people were parented by people who are parented by people who were never allowed to express emotions because generationally there really was in our society, a message that children are to be seen and not heard, or the goal of childhood is to behave, um, and be, and be quiet and be compliant. And so if that's the way you're brought up, then when your child has emotions, it's, it's scary for you. What do you do with that? You don't know what to do with that. And you, and frankly, it can actually be re-traumatizing to your inner child, right? Because I say this to parents a lot in parent therapy, um, or parenting support, coaching, whatever, um. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to call this <laughs> practice. But like a lot of times parents are like, oh, I see my child get upset and I get angry because I don't want to be like my my dad would yell at me for crying. And so I, I'm i trying to like either be like my dad or be absolutely different from my dad. But in reality, I think what happens, they recognize they get dysregulated when their child cries, but I actually think they're not angry or I really think they're scared. I think their inner child is recognizing, oh my gosh, when we used to do this, we got in trouble. It's not safe to cry. It's not safe to get angry. Stop. We're going to get in trouble. Like that's really what's flooding a parent in these moments is actually reliving of the traumas of being kind of suppressed or repressed as a child out of fear for repercussions for showing their emotions. So they actually have to relearn how to tolerate their own emotions so that they could tolerate their children's emotions. So a lot of the work I do with parents is actually kind of that sort, it really is going back to their childhoods and understanding what is triggering for them.
1: It's a double whammy, I think, because you have the threat-based response, which is almost like PTSD. So. They can't think flexibly in a survival mode. They never had the the right behaviors at their fingertips. So even if you're calm enough to say, I need to do something different, you don't have the something different to do. It's really, it's really striking how it's passed on. Yeah, a lot of times with parents, you you see this pattern of, I'm going to do the opposite of what my parents did with me, but it's still within the same kind of fight-flight framework. And so Mm -hmm. they try to do the opposite, but they end up sort of doing some harm. So being way too permissive Mm -hmm. instead of being abusive.
0: Right. I see that all the time. And I think a lot of what I do with parents is try to help them find their power and their comfort in their power as parents because children want us to be in charge. They really actually find a tremendous amount of comfort in knowing that we have got this. They don't want to be more powerful than us. That's very anxiety provoking for a child. And despite the fact that they may, you know, protest our limits, we should not mistake that for a desire on their part to be in charge. They're actually just checking and saying, wait, who's in charge here? Am I in charge or are you in charge? All of the testing behaviors we see in kids, I honestly think is safety checking. I don't think it is testing limits or acting out or pushing buttons as a way of like taking power. I think it's actually a request for us to actually, to feel comfortable and reassure mm-hmm. them. No, no, I'm in charge. I've got you. So they can stop saying, well, what if I do this? Will you be in charge then? If I do this, will you be in charge then? Mm -hmm. So they keep having to kind of out of the state of like fight or flight and anxiety, keep checking to see who's in charge. If we can just sort of really firmly and confidently say, I'm not going to let you do that right now and give them an alternative behavior or redirect them or just contain them and let them completely melt down because they want to do the thing we're saying no to. Mm -hmm. That's also happening simultaneously, but their psychological being is saying, I need you to be in charge. I need you to hold all of this together for me. And so we have to stay sort of certain and steady in the face of their upset and be able to kind of contain it and tolerate it. You're really upset that I said, no, you don't like that. I said, no, you really want to fill in the blank and to be able to just sit there as our children emote and that's right. safe and communicate with our body language and our tone of voice and our facial expressions. It's Safe for you to have these feelings,
1: and I guess the words you're using too to teach the child to make sense of their own experience using language, which you know we know they call mentalizing now. But <laughs> this is bringing up a lot of interesting thoughts for me. Mm-hmm. One one of them being that, in, you know, an insecure parent will will take a child testing for safety as as a power struggle, and then you know that triggers the parent into sort of a their own childlike behaviors, like you're saying, kind of the unsafe inner child of the parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I joke about this sometimes. I say, you know, anyone who gets into a power struggle with a toddler, um, it's not the toddler's fault. And my, my thought is that, you know, kids are checking to see if the parent is competent. And if the parent is competent, they'll do what you're describing. They'll create a sort of a calm space where there are boundaries. But if the parent is not so competent, the kid will end up feeling like they have too much power. And need to start taking over for their own well-being. And and maybe that's the best outcome for a kid where you see, you know, like a like parentified kids whose parents were depressed or alcoholic. And the kid really does have to step into an adult role, you know, too early. You know, that early testing tells the kid, like, is my environment gonna go this way or that way? Mm-hmm. It is interesting
2: too, because sometimes it can feel like we're hurting our kids if we're not giving into them, right? Or uh, people who have been very deprived in their own childhoods have a really hard time saying no to their kids because it brings up all of that deprivation. So that's why I I so like the idea of the parent coaching or or parent therapy, because I think it can be therapeutic on both
0: ends because it sort of repairs maybe something for, for the parent as well and that's actually one of the things that at least in my experience ends up coming like some of the most rich material that comes out of the work i do with parents is often like yeah i can give you strategies to help your child do x or y or z or to understand why the problem's really happening in the first place so we can like mm-hmm. accurately get an understanding of what's going on so we can respond differently but these big overarching patterns really are rooted in the parent, right? They're rooted in their experience. And so I think one of the benefits to doing this work with a psychologist or, or, or someone who's trained in kind of the therapeutic act, the real psychological background of why we show up in the world the way we do and how trauma can... Can shape all of these things, whether that's capital T trauma or lowercase t, kind of chronic, subtle, pervasive traumas of just, you know, chronic misattunement from your parent (laughs) is a trauma. It's not a big, scary event. It's just these sort of really subtle messages that my world's not so safe. My world's not Mm -hmm. so safe. My needs go unmet a lot
1: and aren't trustworthy.
0: mm -hmm, Yeah. And so if you've had an experience in your own life, where you've internalized that and then have all these defenses and coping mechanisms, some adaptive, some maladaptive, still show up every day in your life and and continue to live and survive. Then when you become a parent, a lot of that stuff the, the glue that was holding all that, the sort of not so great stuff together starts to come apart because the the stress and the pressure and just the intensity of all the affect that happens in early childhood, like it's, it's unmooring for people who are not really securely attached to begin with. And so a lot of times we have to go back and repair some of those early wounds to be able to show up for our kids and help them to not, not sort of, continue the cycle, to break the cycle.
1: Being a parent is a huge developmental opportunity for parents, (laughs) you know, and of course it stirs up all of your own issues.
2: Right. And I think it can even stir them up in terms of looking back people who let's say were, you know, punished very severely for normal kid behavior Mm -hmm. and are then just seeing it. Yeah. their own kids and thinking, wow, the, the consequences would have been so different or so much harsher. I mean, is that something that comes up
0: and people kind of think about their own childhoods or spiral in that way? Yeah, I think it can be very painful. I think it can be very painful. I think parenting can be very painful if you have painful memories from your own childhood, especially if there was really harsh punishment, or if love felt conditional in some way, like if a parent withdrew or withheld love or affection or closeness because of something you did, because that's just, it's a very, it's a very heavy thing for a child to have to hold. Mm -hmm. And so when your child then needs you, or it does a similar behavior that you received, you know, uh, deep pain, from doing yourself, it's going to be, kids hold up a mirror. I mean, in, in the best way, right? They hold up a mirror to the best of us and they hold up a mirror to some of the more painful parts of us as well. And so I do, I do think parenting can be very painful if you've had those experiences and it doesn't mean that you have to then grant like what you were saying, like you don't have to do either the extreme opposite or follow in the exact footsteps. Like you're not doomed to recreate, and you're not. You don't. Alternative isn't to become completely permissive either. If you had like a really sort of authoritative, sorry, authoritarian, and like a, authoritarian, you know, yeah, you know, aggressively you know, behavior focused parent.
1: Hostile and helpless parenting is part of this attachment model. Do you have any tips for parents? I saw you use a lot of neuroscience in your work, you know, what, and talking about DBT and mindfulness at those moments when, you know, I'm triggered, maybe there's a specific trauma, you know, my kid just did something that I sort of lived through, or maybe I'm just feeling sort of under resourced as a parent and feeling like a failure or maybe I'm even feeling envious of my kid that mm-hmm. my kid has it so much better than I did um, what can a parent do in the moment to restore the ability to think effectively you know and reflectively rather than to respond automatically what what do you what do you sort of coach parents on
0: yeah well i think understanding the neurobiology and like the nervous system is key here. So, you know, I I always kind of help parents understand the why, because nobody likes to be told to take a deep breath when they're upset. It's like, oh, I want to punch you in the face. Like, don't tell me that. But if you understand why something like that works and you understand the science behind it, it's a lot easier to get on board with something like a deep breath. But when when you're in fight or flight, when you're in your sympathetic nervous system, hyperarousal, you're flooded. We want to get into parasympathetic. We want to turn on our parasympathetic nervous system, our rest digest. And one of the ways that you can do that is there's a nerve, a vagus, the vagus nerve that runs down. You know, it's kind of run, it's this very long nerve that runs all the way down your neck, all the way down your spine, and it's it's located behind our vocal cords. And if we take a really deep breath with a very long, slow exhale, our neck contracts. It puts pressure on the vagus nerve, and it activates our parasympathetic nervous system. So really, taking a deep breath is one of the best things that you can do now if you're at a 10 a deep breath probably not gonna do a whole lot for you so a lot of this is about kind of becoming a really attuned monitor of your own like how activated you're getting and starting to pay attention if you're getting to you're a buying, 10 all the right? time mm-hmm. and you're blowing up all the time you have to start trying to get more attuned to what does it feel like when I'm a six what does it feel like when I'm a seven and and those are the times when a deep breath might really help if you're at a 10 it's best to just walk away for a moment. Um, and get some space. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's sort of like a body scanning element where a lot of times the body, you know, Bessel van der Kolk's book, the body keeps the score. So if parents, especially if they had abuse, they learn to ignore their needs or deprivation. Th- that breathing technique is interesting because in yoga, I remember one of the things I learned was to breathe out and make a humming noise, which, you know, mm-hmm. intensifies that sort of soothing effect. And the the vagus nerve, because um, it mm-hmm. goes really everywhere all over the body.
0: Yeah, and humming actually is great, and I think it's one of the reasons why parents instinctively hum and sing to their children, because it is very soothing and it is very it activates the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm.
1: Just gonna say it's also hard to remember the words at two in the morning.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's very, it's the vibration from our humming actually calms their body down. Like our very young children don't really have a lot of faculty for regulating their nervous system on their own. Like they, we kind of need to be their external nervous system, their external regulator. So picking our child up and laying their head on our shoulder and humming that vibration actually really does regulate Mm -hmm. their nervous system and skin to skin on top of that can also communicate to the, like it sends us, our skin is an organ and it gets messages when And it has that skin to skin contact to produce oxytocin and to calm down the body. So we want, even when we're upset, this is another thing I tell parents is to put your hand on your, your bare hand on your bare chest, because that skin to skin contact also activates our parasympathetic Mm -hmm. nervous system. Just with yourself, right? Yeah. Just to yourself. Like when I'm in that, like I'm a seven, I'm climbing to an eight. I need to put my hand on my chest, take that deep breath, feel the pressure on my chest, that compression, that weight, it's grounding. The skin-to-skin contact is calming to my body. It's triggering my parasympathetic. A lot of these things are telling our body to change our neurobiology and mo- our, our, chemi- our biochemistry in that moment.
1: One thing I noticed is when when my kids would be upset, um i would i would sit next to them or lie next to them in bed do the skin to skin contact but i would specifically use breath exercises and i would notice that their breathing would come to match mine which would be at a normal respiratory rate (laughs) and then i could get back to sleep (laughs) (laughs) that's so true and and
0: I think even when our children are tantruming, like that's really helpful. Like, again, we don't like being told to take a deep breath when we're upset. Our kids don't like being told to take a deep breath when they're upset. But if we sit down next to them and get close to their body with our body and we start taking deep breaths, not as mm-hmm. a, you should take a deep breath now, watch mommy, but. Yeah.
1: <sighs> so implicitly, like show, don't tell.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Their mirror neurons are going to start to kind of take in this these cues and start yeah. to, to do the same thing. Our kids are hyper attuned, super, super attentive consciously and unconsciously to our facial expressions, our emotional output, because that's that's the attachment theory, right? Our attachment theory states that our children are biologically hardwired to form a bond to us for safety and survival, It's keep them alive. If they know, if, if our face just twitches in a disapproving way or in a fearful way. It's like so prim- primal. They Their entire body prepares for danger. Histo- evolutionarily, mm-hmm. if my mom flinched, I needed to get ready because we're going to go for a run because we're running from like a saber tooth tiger. And so like my entire body has to get ready to like grab onto hers and be prepared not to fall off and die. It's intense, but like that, but our brains have not caught up to evolution. Our brains do not know our children's veins don't know the difference between a mom's twitch in the, you know, in the bush versus our mom's twitch in the kitchen. We have to recognize that our the way we carry our body and our energy is very contagious for our children. So if we wanna help them regulate, we need to regulate. If we come at a child angry and yelling and bigger than them, which is very common when we're trying to show, prove a point and teach a lesson, we are going to add fuel to a fire not bur- t- not put it out
1: that's also so, common in the animal kingdom to try yeah. to puff yourself up and look yeah. intimidating <laughs> the kitchen can be quite a dangerous place but yeah. I, I always think sure. people are people are sort of born most people are born as emotional echo chambers and we learn not to be over time but that's not good you know to numb out it's yeah. good to learn to be responsive but also to keep it from going uh going haywire. What, what were you going to say, Farah? No, so. I
2: was just going to say like on that note, are there any strategies, I guess, when, you know, it sounds like you work with with parents that are sort of have newborns as well as toddlers and probably beyond when a toddler is melting down, what do you usually suggest? And, you know, what is the kind of feedback <sighs> that you get?
0: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I usually suggest is stop trying to teach in that moment. Their frontal lobes are offline. They're not hearing anything you say. They need you to help co-regulate. So before we can teach, we have to, or like, you know, change a behavior or whatever, Mm -hmm. get a kid to do what we want them to do, Mm -hmm. aka maybe stop tantruming. We have to put aside our agenda for like the brain stuff, like, like, you know, learning or whatever it is that we're trying to teach in that moment. And we need to co-regulate. We need to use our bodies, use our tone of voice, use our facial expression, use our breath to communicate safety. Because really, if a kid is tantruming, their brain is in is their amygdala is blaring, their frontal lobes are offline, their nervous system is in sympathetic arousal, they're in fight or flight. In order to help our child move out of that, first we have to get them out of fight or flight. We have to make them feel safe. And we do that by getting low and close, talking quietly, by naming their feeling, validating their emotion, telling them that we're there, not belating, not separating, mm-hmm. right? And that's not a time for a timeout.
2: Okay,
0: Um yeah. You know, we, we don't want to, we don't want them to equate this dysregulated and scared state with now I'm separated from my parent. This like causes me and, to be, right. exactly.
1: I can't get upset. Otherwise I'll get abandoned. Cause that teaches them to push that feeling
0: down either consciously with suppression or unconsciously with repression. And we don't, we don't want that. That's not going to help our child build resilience. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty big indicator of future anxiety and depression and, you know, self-esteem issues later in life, emotion dysregulation. We just, we really want to let them know that their emotions are safe. Now I put a big asterisk by this because usually a kid is tantruming or melting down because they're upset that maybe we set a limit on something or we said no mm-hmm. or we took something away i don't mean to say that we don't hold the boundary right, right. this isn't a permissive oh well you're going to cry so never mind i won't say no and let me just validate your emotions we we can validate emotions without without allowing a behavior mm-hmm. so we can be very calm and confidently setting a boundary on the behavior and not changing on that like mm-hmm. we're not having ice cream tonight they start crying you're like oh you're very upset i see that you're upset you really wanted ice cream there'll be time for ice cream another day this week but tonight it's not on the menu and then move out of that because no more talking because their brains are offline but now we're just co-regulating we're getting on their level we're letting them know it's safe it's okay for them to be angry it makes sense that they're angry they wanted that ice cream why would why wouldn't they be upset they don't have the capacity to regulate that kind of upset right now Um, we teach them that capacity by showing them how to regulate by doing this with them
1: I've heard that described uh, one way as authoritative parenting, where you set clear behavioral limits. Um, You're supportive, but you don't get in your kid's head too much. You know, some parents try to sort of psychotherapize their kids, and and it's grounded in warmth, but also, you know, sort of uh, firmness. You know, I'm sure a lot of people listening with kids will kind of say, well, is there ever a time when I need to be like, quote unquote, tough?
0: I think you can be tough without being harsh or cold or loud. You can be firm and warm and gentle it's it's they're not mutually exclusive right and I, I think that's the maybe a helpful thing for parents to kind of really hold space for the for those that dialectic i can do both this and this work together i can be very clear about what my expectation is of my child and very firmly hold that expectation allow for that developmentally appropriate expression of displeasure and protest because that's their job right our job is to set the rules and set the boundaries and keep them safe and keep them healthy and keep them clean and, you know, th- that's our jobs, move them through the, the sequence of the day. Those are, that's our job. And their job is to share their feelings about that with us and not to inhibit that, not to censor that. That's not their, we want them to be able to tell us exactly how they feel. And frankly, if we can get into a rhythm of that when our children are young, where it's really clear that yes, mom and dad are in charge, but I can share my feelings with them. And that is always okay. You're going to have teens that come to you. When they're in trouble, and that is what most parents want to hear.
1: I had a funny thought that came to mind, you know, not surprisingly, but I thought also, you know, like if you go to a restaurant and the dish isn't prepared well, a lot of people, this is a funny example, but they have a huge amount of trouble just saying to the waiter, you know, um, this doesn't taste right to me. Could you send it back and have it fixed, or get me something else? People struggle with the even simple example, and, and I thought of that when you talked about, you know, the dialectic, like you know, I can be compassionate and also firm. So mm-hmm. thanks so much. Everything is great. But, you know, my dish is a bit too salty for me, or I asked for it without onions. Would you mind sending it back? But I hear people, um, you know, in, in often in therapy over and over again, situations like that, not knowing how to say what they want, expect to be heard and not feel sort of guilty or ashamed. And I wonder what your thoughts are about in terms of what you're saying about the roots in the early parent-child relationship,
0: absolutely. I mean, 100%. I think assertiveness is has to be taught and modeled, and we have to let our children say no. Like, I think people have a really hard time. They get confused that if my child has a has a say in everything, then then they running they're running the show, and I I can't be in charge. And I think that's very not the case. I think giving children a lot of authentic choice. I always tell parents like authentic choice. A great way to introduce a lot of authentic choice in a child's day to day life is to offer them two options of something that's low stakes that no matter what they pick, you're comfortable giving. So, do you want the blue cup or the green cup? Green cup with your, you know, t- tonight? Do you want peas or broccoli with your chicken? Or do you want to wear, you know, this shirt or this shirt? Mm-hmm. And it gives children a sense of control. It gives them a sense of they have a role, they have a say, they have power in the family too. They're 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 there. They're a part of the team. And also, like another piece to this is, you know, a lot. I don't know, Farah, if you or Grant, if you guys, ha- when your kids were young, mm-hmm. I see this a lot in my children's daycare, where the teachers will teach them to say no, thank you, when they don't mm-hmm. like something, as like a. I think it's to Teach politeness, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. But my thought is when my son is pushed by another kid, which totally happens, very normal, I want him to know how to navigate that. I don't want him to say no, thank you. I want him to say, I don't want you to push me. And I think we actually have to model this kind of assertive language and permission for our children to say, No, I don't like that.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: And not jump in to solve the problem for them, but to say, You can say, I don't want you to push me. I'm not going to jump in and separate the kids. Kids push. It's normal. It's okay. Yeah. But I might say, I see you want to push. I'm not going to let you push. To the other child, I might say, what can you say right now? Would you like to right. say, stop, I don't want you to push me? Like, I don't know. We have to, I think we have to not be so afraid of letting our kids be assertive and and, I, and yeah. firm. I,
1: I 100% think you're right, because later on, they're, they're going to need to be able to say no, especially when... You know they're in position where you know consent mm-hmm. is being requested or not requested in personal and professional relationships, yeah. I, and I think there's a difference. I try to model that with my kids myself. You know where some things are like no, no thanks, not right now, but other things are sort of like a hard stop, but in a gentle way. Like I used the example before we started talking of of my ten year old interrupting me during a therapy meeting to ask mm-hmm. what my password was so he could download something on <laughs> Minecraft, and I, I wasn't harsh. And later on afterward, I came back and. And I said, I just want to let you know that wasn't okay with me. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand it's important, but it's not okay with me.
0: And I think but parents can sometimes feel a little uncomfortable. I think one of the things, yes, we want to teach our kids to say that, but we also need to talk, talk to them like that right yeah, right? Like- yeah. And, and
2: not have the expectation which a lot of people do that you know oh go give grandma or grandpa a hug or mm. you know to teach them that they don't have full ownership over their own bodies and what they do with their bodies and i think that those messages of course little kids are cute and we want to pinch their cheeks and we want to hug them but it's also okay for them to say i don't want to be hugged right now
1: they don't uh, want yeah. they often don't want that i'm, I'm very you know, like if if my kids are like, "I don't want to be hugged, I stop. Yeah. right. But when I was yeah. growing up, sometimes it would be like, "What's the matter with you?" Like it's just a hug. It's like, no, no means no.
0: And I think giving modeling for our like before our kids maybe have the language to say, I don't like that or I don't want Mm -hmm. that. You know, you can maybe observe that they're they're showing body language to you as a parent that you can kind of decode that says they don't want this right now to be able to say kind of on behalf of them to the very loving and very Mm -hmm. well-intentioned grandparent, I think they need some space. Can you offer them a high five instead or maybe a wave to try to, I mean, you kind of have to be a little diplomatic and you have to kind of. But you kind of have to show up as a mama bear or a papa bear in those ways and protect your child from being shamed for not wanting, being shamed for saying no. And we actually really want to reinforce their power to say no and that they're in charge of their body.
2: Yeah, I think fostering that from a young age is something that when they get to adolescence and then they do get into these situations where it might feel really uncomfortable to say no. I mean, that's why they need practice.
0: Yeah, Um, I love that. For sure.
1: That's a great point. And, and you're showing your kids that you can deal with um, the grandparents, maybe, you know, using some of the same tools and um, yeah. but the, the basic fundamental respect yeah. for one yeah. another starts right away, going for back sure. to the, yeah. the, the ride technique. And it was um, Magda Gerber, right? You said,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah,
1: like the, the kid is a kid, but they have a mind and they have their own world. And how do how do we sometimes
0: like enter their world instead of always expecting them
1: to enter ours? That's that sometimes can vary with uh, at least I've read with uh and I've seen a little bit but you know in terms of gender stereotypes but I think there's some attachment literature that says that moms are more likely to join the kids in their play and fathers are more likely to sort of come in and take over <laughs> and invite the kid into into what they want to do, you know. Mm, yeah. Uh, though maybe that's, that's changing, I hope.
2: I don't know I, we're sort of winding down here, but I yeah. want to thank you so much for, I mean, this was just a great conversation and I think people are going to really benefit. Yeah. If, you know, someone wants to get in touch or where can people find you or what resources
0: do you kind of like recommend? Yeah. Um, so you can reach me, you can go to my website, com, and I'm on Instagram at drsarahbrunn. Okay. And I actually have, if you go to my website, there's a core, um, a guide you can download for like parenting smarter, not harder is this guide I wrote during the pandemic, which was basically how do you parent and work from home with kids and like neuropsych strategies for kind of doing all these things. It's an excellent Um,
1: free resource.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can share the link. If you go to my website, it'll pop up. It's very and,
1: easy to find, right? Dr. Dr. Sarah Bren, dot com. Yeah? yeah. Yeah. And it's
0: Sarah with an H. Okay. Oh, we'll
1: and we in the show notes.
0: Oh, for, perfect. Yeah. And then also I'm starting a podcast myself, <laughs> which I would love for you guys to come and be on so we can kind of Definitely. continue this conversation, yes. but it's that. called Securely Attached. That's awesome. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah, yeah. It yeah it's is. all about attachment and the parent-child relationship and deep dives into all the stuff we're talking about. So it yeah.
1: oh, sounds great. Well, we can't wait to be able to listen. Thank you for joining yeah. us today, Sarah. Yeah. Thank,
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform you can also find us on Instagram at Comments.
1: Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.